and just spent the entire day almost just trying on beautiful lingerie and borrowing their jewelry and just doing these beautiful poses. And it's almost really special that I didn't have them done for any man in particular. They were mine, they were for me. I think one of the things that I didn't know is how good the reconstruction options can be. Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. If a man does respond negatively and says, I'm not interested, of course it's going to hurt a woman, but it's a really good thing. Next, you just weeded out someone and saved yourself so much time. Sarah Masali is a 32-year-old freelance writer from San Diego. She writes for a number of different media outlets as well as on her own blog. She carries a mutation in the BRCA2 gene and has written extensively about her personal and family experiences surrounding this diagnosis. Her writing includes a deeply personal look into her decision to undergo a prophylactic mastectomy, her multiple reconstructive surgeries, and how this has all impacted her young children, her dating life, her self-esteem, and her passion for health and physical fitness. I know from, I've spent some time reading your blog, and so I know from that that you had genetic testing done when you were 18 years old, and you learned at the time that you carried a mutation in the BRCA2 gene, which puts you at higher risk for developing certain cancers, especially breast and ovarian cancer. What led you to have that testing done? Did you already know at that time that there was a mutation in the family, or did you have testing done just based on your family history of cancer? I didn't know that we had any mutations in the family. I was 18, so I really didn't know what a gene mutation was. I just, uh, we had, my aunt had passed away when I was a child, and we had several family members who were women that were getting uh, breast and ovarian cancer, and so it just seemed like there was a hereditary link. So my mom recommended that we do genetic counseling uh, through our insurance and uh, speak with a genetic counselor. And that's why we, my whole family, well, my brother and my mom and I did the testing together. Okay. So the three, did the three of you go in to meet with a genetic counselor all at once? Yes, we did. Interesting. How, what was that experience like? And did you, ref, did you self-refer or did a doctor refer you for that appointment? You know, I had, now that I'm 32 and I had it done at 18, I'm pretty sure my mom handled everything at the time. So I don't remember much, um, but I remember my mom having to really uh, fight and, and beg and plead to get a referral. Hmm. And um, I know she really wanted it done. She wanted to know more about um, how to protect us. Yeah. And how old was your brother at the time? He was, he's three years older, so he's 21. Okay. And was that something that you were really interested in doing, or did your mom sort of drag you to that appointment? Well, she definitely gave us the option, so it was never a forced thing. 
I don't know that I was super interested in it, but I was more worried. Um, and I trust her and she's always been uh, an amazing mother and great at protecting us. So I knew that if she recommended this, that it would be a good idea. Yeah. And how did you learn that you were BRCA2 positive, that you had a mutation in that gene? Did you go back in to speak with a genetic counselor or did they call you? No, we went in, the genetic counselor actually gave me results. So I don't know to this day, I don't know if my mom got the results uh, prior or not, but just literally sitting down there with my mom and with the genetic counselor, the genetic counselor spoke the results to me. Uh, and, and obviously she gave us some results and then explained what that meant. Yeah. Do you remember what, what was that like as an 18 year old to hear that? Uh, it, it was definitely scary. It was less scary than if I were to just get results and not have anyone to talk to about, <laughs> uh, talk to about with, but, um, she assured me that I didn't need to make any changes to my life or my lifestyle right away. And I appreciated that because at 18, you don't want to think about those really heavy decisions, you just think about having fun and mm-hmm. all of that. Um, and so she just kind of gave me advice about, well, you'll make some decisions at some later date in the future. This is, we're going to do some screening for you and this and that. And so it was really scary, but I was also grateful to have a plan of action. Yeah. And so at what point did you actually start having breast screenings done? Uh, my early 20s. Okay. I started and- with just um, seeing an oncologist having manual uh, breast exams. They taught me how to do self exams. And then as I, I think I was in my mid twenties when I started everything from breast MRIs and pelvic ultrasounds. And then I started mammograms, I think in my late twenties. Okay. And at this point, I think you've just finished the last of many surgeries for, um, uh, risk-reducing mastectomy and breast reconstruction. Is that right? That's right. I finished the last surgery, at least for now. So I've had a tubal self-injectomy or a few years ago, I had my tubes removed. And I have now, I had my double mastectomy in January of 2018. And then I had two reconstruction surgeries. And right now I'm six weeks post stop from my third reconstruction surgery. So I'm done um, with breast reconstruction. At some point in the future, I'm going to have my ovaries removed, but not for a little while, probably until I'm closer to 40 years old. Okay. And so a lot of women who have a BRCA mutation um, opt to just do surveillance like you were doing in your 20s and not to have healthy breast tissue removed prophylactically. What was your process like in deciding to go that route of having a mastectomy done? Yeah, after having the genetic testing, my mom was diagnosed with a very aggressive triple negative uh, breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And that also solidified the decision that I should be doing, I should be preparing myself for surgery at some point in the future. Because watching her go through the treatment, the mastectomy, her reconstruction options were really, really tough and not. Uh, what I hoped for for my body because her cancer had spread so much. And so she ended up losing a bunch of back muscle that they had to use to reconstruct. And for myself, as someone who loves 
fitness and weightlifting, the idea of having any muscle cut out of my body was, it was really, really scary. And just as I kind of became more involved in learning about this and um, meeting people in the BRCA community, I met several people who got cancer and passed away in their 20s and 30s and just realized that this risk was real. And this risk was, um, it, it was something that I needed to take action on and I couldn't, I couldn't just hide from it. Mm-hmm. And you, for, for some people, there's definitely the, the question of timing when people are hoping to have children um, and haven't had children yet or wanting to breastfeed. And you actually got married young and had children young. Is that right? Yes. I got married at 23 and I had uh, two children at 25 and 29. So, okay. yeah, and then I was done. And then you start. Then you started your plan for surgeries. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I, and I, I. I mean, I knew that I didn't want more than. And I mean, even when I was pregnant, I knew that I would be having a mastectomy sometime after I was finished nursing. Yeah. Okay. So what what has it been like? Your your kids are pretty young. I think your son is six and a half, and your daughter is two and a half. Right. That's correct. Yeah. What what was it like to go through those surgeries while caring for young children, and what was their reaction to kind of watching you go through those different recoveries? It's harder emotionally than it is physically, and physically it's still really hard. But the challenge when they're young is that they just don't understand, and um, and it's sad because I wanted to. I had three separate periods of time this year where I couldn't pick up my daughter and lift her and hold her and you know, spin her around and cuddle her. And she didn't really understand why. All she understood was that mama had boo-boos and she doesn't even know why I have boo-boos or what they look like or, you know, anything like that. Um, and my son gets it a little bit more. He doesn't ask too many questions. He knows that there was something dangerous that I had taken out and now I'm safe and happy about that. But physically, not being able to um, connect as deeply as I wanted to, the the cuddling is less and all of that has been hard. I'm thankful that they don't worry too much. Like that was one of my big fears is that they would be constantly worrying about that I would die or anything like that. And and they, they do trust when I tell them that I'm safe. So I'm grateful for that, but it's been, it's been really hard. I want them to know how much I love them and, they don't really know that I'm doing this for them and to be there for them, but I've had to have a lot of help. Yeah. And now that you're six weeks out from your last surgery, are you getting pretty close to, to being back, back to normal or do you have a long way to go before you can <laughs> really engage with them where they're not, they're not kind of like wondering why, why you're more limited. I'm getting there. I'm not exactly where I was before, but I am driving. I'm taking them to school, them up, making them food, giving them bath, all of that. But I'm still not with my daughter up off the floor. Now, of course, she can walk, but there's, you know, but with a two year old or a three year old, yes, they can walk, but they love to be held and stuff. And so I'm just, um, I actually had an abdominal surgery with this third surgery at the same time. And I think because of that, I'm being overly cautious. With my first surgery, my mastectomy, I didn't pick my daughter up for seven and a half weeks. 
My second reconstruction surgery, I picked her up at the six, six week mark. And this time I'm probably gonna wait another two weeks option. After this, your next surgery won't be until you're about 40 to have your ovaries removed. Is that something that seems close to you or pretty far away? It seems far away. Yeah, I, I'd like to like be able to not even about having any surgeries ever again. But having three surgeries in one year, and then now to say, well, I can go about eight more years without having a surgery, that's a huge period of time. That seems wonderful. Yet at the same time, I can't confidently say that it's going to be eight years until my next surgery, because I feel like with breast reconstruction, things are always changing. And I just met with my plastic surgeon last week to do kind of a six week post-op check. And, you know, there I'm, I'm overall happy with the outcome, with the way that my breasts look, but there are certain things that I wish were a little different. Like when you have implants placed above the muscle, but you don't really have much fat left because of the mastectomy, it can be kind of ripply. And so I have still the appearance of some ripples in my breast that I told my surgeon I'm wish that they weren't there. And her response is that there's not really much that we can do anymore at this point because I've already had two rounds of fat grafting, which didn't work. But science is always changing. Technology is always getting better. They may have better implants for you in the future. And so when they do, I'm probably going to have that done and have them as well. Yeah. When I mean, with everything you've gone through with different surgeries and different options for reconstruction, is there anything that you initially thought um, was true about reconstructive surgery that you now realize is is not true at all? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. The first thing is that I think when anyone says the term double mastectomy, that people immediately create a picture in their mind of a woman who's gone flat with no chest, no anything, and that reconstruction creates something that's um, very shocking looking, which it sometimes can be that way, but it's not always the case. Um, The way mine look now, most people would never know that I had a double mastectomy. I show my girlfriends, like I've showed them because they've been so curious, my best friends. They're like, your breasts look incredible. They just like maybe had a breast lift because I did. And that um, is the reason for some of the scarring around my breast is having a lift at the same time. And so uh, I think one of the things that I didn't know is how good the reconstruction options can be. Yes, they take time. Yes, it's frustrating to have multiple surgeries, but I didn't realize that there are so many different options and choices and that ultimately you can have a double mastectomy and still feel really good about the way that they look. Yeah. And I think, um, I think you've mentioned on your blog too, you have some scars from surgeries that are probably going to fade with time, but your surgeries were still just so recent um, that those were hard for you to get used to also. Is that right? Yes. And I think if I were to just have the double mastectomy with reconstruction with no breast lift, I probably wouldn't have that much scarring, but because I actually had a breast lift with each of my three surgeries, like that's how saggy they were from nursing. So, um, and my plastic surgeon is is great. She's not just about um, 
you know, reconstruction in a way that gets it done. She wants me to be really happy with the look. And so um, each of the times she's done a lift and now they're at a point where I really like the look and yet I do have scarring around the whole nipple and then going down in the middle, which is kind of that lollipop scar. So it's just a you know, purplish scar going down the middle of the breast. Um, certainly could be could be worse, but I'm I'm getting used to them over this period of, you know, almost a year that it's been. And I know that they're going to fade in time. Um, but I have to accept that they don't look like the breasts that I, you know, in the theater if, if I'm watching a movie or they don't look like my friend's breasts. They do look a little different and that's okay. I know you, you write a lot about your experience with a BRCA mutation in different media outlets. How, how do you decide how much of yourself to put out there into, into an article for, for other people to read? That's a great question. I put almost everything out there. And I decided that I was going to be really open and vulnerable, even if I was really scared about what people might think about me, because I write sometimes things about uh, anxiety or depression or dating, uh, even some about sexuality and things like that. And it's very scary <laughs> to feel like I could be judged for putting kind of messy, raw things out there. But I felt like it's really important if I was going to write to not be fake and to just share everything that's true. And the response has been really good. I think that people appreciate anytime someone's open and honest. Because a lot of times other people are feeling the same scary feelings and just don't know that it's okay to talk about it. Yeah. And you've also, you've started a Facebook group, right? That's um, for people with BRCA mutations, but specifically focused around fitness and nutrition, which is a passion of yours. Yes, absolutely. I started it quite a while ago and it's grown just organically. There's no, um, nothing that's sold or no profit or anything like that, but it is a passion of mine. Um, I have a, my background is I have a degree in nutrition and fitness is just a, a hobby and a passion of mine. I love weightlifting. And so when I first started meeting with plastic surgeons, it was a big concern of mine. Will I still be able to weightlift? And the first surgeon that I met with emphatically said, no. He said, I only place implants under the muscle because it looks better. You'll be able to do some, but you'll never be able to lift heavy or do chest exercises like push-ups or bench press again. And I became extremely depressed. And I, cr I cried a lot about that. And it wasn't until I learned that I could with other surgeons that there were other options. Mm -hmm. and realized that, yes, I could get back into weightlifting. I could lift heavy again. I could do almost anything that I want again, but there's such a process. And so this group, uh, Raka uh, Fitness and Nutrition, is really a bunch of women supporting each other in wherever they are in that journey. So, you know, whether you're two weeks post-op and you're just literally working on raising your arms above your head, or we have an Olympic power lifter in the group. And so it's really cool to support each other in um, all the various surgeries that we've had collectively. <laughs> yeah, um, that's, a, that's a theme that seems to come up in a lot of interviews is getting a second opinion from other doctors. <laughs> Completely. 
Yeah. And I didn't even know that I could because I was going through my insurance. So what happened is my oncologist referred me to one. I went to that one, gave me the bad news. I became really, really sad. We scheduled the surgery. I was depressed about it. And then my insurance denied it. I got a denial letter in the mail and I was really confused. I called them and they let me know that even though my oncologist had referred me to that specific plastic surgeon, he was out of my HMO network. So I was then referred to a second plastic surgeon who was in my HMO network. And I'm so thankful for that because she did it a different way and she had better bedside manner and really answered my questions and um, ultimately really good job on doing surgeries for me. Yeah, that's um it's funny that like an insurance hassle actually had a positive outcome. Yes. <laughs> I'm so thankful. <laughs> um so have there been some changes in what you can do in terms of fitness and weightlifting or is it kind of hard to say because you've been through so many surgeries over a span of time and you're still really in recovery? Yeah, what I can do and what I do do are different now. And a lot of that is attached to this additional level of caution that I've gained over having three surgeries. So I can weightlift and I do weightlift and I'm happy about that. And I love that. But at the same time, prior to having my double mastectomy, I was much more active in heavy lifting pull-ups. And I was looking into um, trials for American Ninja Warrior. I was really big into going big, right? And after having these surgeries, I've kind of come to a realization that, yes, it's potentially possible that I could do something like that, but I really don't want to have a fall that would cause an injury to my breasts or my implants. That's a legitimate fear that I have. And so I choose now not to put myself in situations where I could have a, a fall, whether it's, um, you know, anything like that you could fall on your breast, right? <laughs> but I still weight lift. And then I'm looking, I'm now trying more uh, different ways of being physically active. So the newest thing that I'm interested in is dancing. And I haven't done that in years. And it's something that allows me to still kind of get that endorphin release, and still gain um, you know, fitness, um, still be fit. But I don't feel like I'm going to injure myself. <laughs> right. For people listening to the podcast who kind of live in a in a TV less hole, um, what is American Ninja Warrior? <laughs> oh, how do you describe that? It's these insane, massive. It's an insane obstacle course, basically, where you're jumping off of balls and you're climbing up to the highest heights, and you are just climbing over obstacles. It's just an extreme obstacle course, and it looks really fun. Like I like crazy like that but anyone who doesn't complete the entire course ends up falling that's how you lose and so I just don't want to fall anymore <laughs> right okay yeah and I think we'll include this in the show notes but the one of your blog posts is actually on that too um on accepting the things I cannot change American Ninja Warrior etc <laughs> yes what would you say to someone who has a BRCA mutation and has thought about um, having a mastectomy done with reconstruction, but is nervous about that option, or, um, or, or what would you say to someone who has a family history with a lot of breast cancer, um, and is 
has thought about testing, but is just nervous and not sure that that's a step they want to take? Well, I, I want to be a woman that supports other women no matter what. So I would never shame a woman for saying, you know what, I'm just not going to get the test done. Or I even have female friends who know that they have the BRCA gene and aren't doing mastectomy. That's their right too. It is their right to accept a much larger risk of breast cancer. Everyone has the choice to do whatever they want with their own body. But I would say if a woman feels this gut intuition, like they know they need to take action, whether it is testing, whether it is surgery, or whether it is screening. I know women who are afraid to have a mammogram, that they should listen to that intuition. And they should speak with multiple multiple medical professionals, they should have a consultation with an oncologist or a surgeon or wherever, whatever stage they're at, because as cheesy as it sounds, knowledge is is power. It's so powerful. And and you get to make an informed decision. But the worst thing is making your decisions based on lack of information. That's just putting yourself at risk. Yeah. And I want to go back and ask you about your first experience with losing someone to cancer, Um, because your aunt died of cancer when you were just in elementary school. Is that right? Yes, I was in second grade. Okay. What do you, and I know you have a really um, beautifully written piece uh, about that on your website. What do you remember about that time? It's funny when you think back about your childhood memories. Some of them are like so blurry, but you like remember so much. And I just remember how hard it was on my mom. That was her sister. And I remember her crying a lot. And I didn't visit my aunt much during the process as she was going through surgeries and therapy and trying to save her life. But I remember my first experience seeing a woman without hair and how shocking that is to a child. The child, you don't know that that's possible, and it's sad and it's scary. And I remember her um, in bed and just um, very weak. And um, and then I didn't see her pass away. Obviously, my mom came home crying, and then I did attend her funeral, and it was the first time that I had, you know, a body or anyone who had passed away, and. Um, there were three sisters, and so my mom, my Aunt Joy, who passed away, and then my other Aunt Barb. And my Aunt Barb, at the funeral, she walked me up to the casket, and she asked me if I wanted to like, touch Aunt Joy's hand. And she put my hand like on her hand, and my Aunt Joy's hand was so cold. It was like ice cold, and I didn't know that um, that happened when a person passes away. And that was really scary to me as a child. Like, not scary in the sense of like a horror story but like wow this is so real like my first experience with like death it's real it happens and it doesn't happen you think it does everyone envisions die when you're nine years old and it's lovely and it's not always that way in the real world so I remember that and then I remember my mom just being open about attending a lot of therapy after even though you married young and you had your children young, um, you've been divorced for a while now and are dating. So what is it like for you dating and having a BRCA mutation? And were you, were you dating before you had your, your surgeries done? Or has this just been something that's happened more recently? No, I'm only brand new into 
dating, I was divorced right around the time that I had my first surgery or my double mastectomy. And I didn't date at all when I had the second. After the third surgery is when I started dating. And like right after the third surgery. And it was challenging because actually I wanted to go out and meet people that I was talking to, but I didn't want to go out like um, I didn't want to have that be the first conversation. I'm certainly open to telling men what I've been through, but it doesn't feel mm-hmm. comfortable for it to be the very first discussion. I want to actually be able to get to know each other apart from this particular experience in my life. So I kind of postponed things a little. And now that I am healthy enough to get up and go out and meet people, I am dating, not a lot, but I mean, certainly something that I am eventually looking for a, a long-term relationship. And, and it, it is hard. I've really tossed around the idea of disclosure and when does disclosure come if something looks a little different than a potential partner might expect. And I don't, I've come to the realization that I don't think there's any one right answer. I think that there are some women that would say, you should tell a man right away if you have scarring or if you have no nipples or haven't done reconstruction. And then I think there are some women that would say, I'm not going to disclose at all. I think it's just whatever feels comfortable. Uh, it's challenging. Yeah, I, I think you wrote in one of your blog posts that you also just get, it's like the fatigue of having the same conversation again and again. And sometimes you just wish that guys you went out with had just like already, you know, it's the best case scenario is if they've already stumbled across your blog and read about it. So you don't have to like rehash everything. <laughs> it is. I do get tired of telling it. Now I don't get tired of telling the story when it comes to a podcast or writing something or speaking with a woman who's going through it. And I don't know why I do not really wish to discuss it that much with men. Maybe because I feel like there's some form of some level of me helping women or people by sharing my story. But when it comes to dating, I just, I write a lot about this journey on my Instagram and it's almost, I put my Instagram handle on all of the dating apps. It's almost like, I just go figure it out and <laughs> then we'll talk. Yeah. I guess if they, if they don't take the time to look at that, then they really haven't done much homework or background reading or aren't that interested potentially. <laughs> yeah, correct. And that's so true because that is one, that's a really good point is that if a man does respond negatively and says, I'm not interested, of course, it's going to hurt a woman. But it's a really good thing. Next, you just weeded out someone and saved yourself so much time. <laughs> right. Yeah. Do you do you find that men will bring it up to you like they've seen your Instagram and bring it up specifically or kind of avoid it? Or Yeah, I have had that happen several times with men that I'm talking to. They brought it up in a very kind, very accepting way. I really had no negative comments whatsoever, just more so like, Wow, you've gone through a lot. I'm sending you hugs. Don't need anything. I think you're awesome. That kind of like really, really nice stuff. Yeah, I guess that's a that's a kind of a positive thing about online dating (laughs) is is being able to kind of share that information in a low energy way that kind of um, does some self uh, like self selection weeding out. Yes, exactly, exactly. 
I know from looking at your Instagram, which will also be in our show notes, at some point after your mastectomies, and your mastectomies were over, I mean, this the surgical process is pretty long. Like, how long has this process been for you total, from your first surgery until, like, present, where you're just six weeks post-op from hopefully your last surgery? 11 months. Okay. Okay. That's not as, that's actually, I thought it was even longer, so. <laughs> it feels <Okay>. like forever. <laughs> Okay, so uh, after, at some point during these surgeries, you actually booked uh, a photo session for yourself, like a boudoir photo session, and you have uh, pictures up on your Instagram account. What, um, what kind of led you to, to do that? What kind of inspired you to do something like that? Yeah, it was so fun. It was the first boudoir photo shoot that I had done for myself was think maybe two months after my double mastectomy and it was prior to the two reconstruction uh, surgeries and uh, I went direct to implant so I did have I wasn't glad I did have some implants at the time but the, it wasn't refined or lifted or um, like that but nevertheless that's ultimately all the more reason why I had it done I wanted to celebrate where I was in the moment and what I'd gone through and the reason that I chose to do it was because I was feeling down about the way I looked I was feeling a fear that men wouldn't want to be with me um, which I now after time know that that is not an accurate fear that that men don't care nearly as much as, as we do about the fears that we have about ourselves. But I was feeling just, uh, I needed to feel beautiful. So I found an all-female boudoir photography studio. And it was my first time like wearing lingerie in front of anyone, really, except for my ex-husband. And, um, and just spent the entire day almost just trying on beautiful lingerie and borrowing their jewelry and just doing these beautiful poses and I really loved the photos and it was it's almost really special that I didn't have them done for any man in particular and they, they were mine they were from me and instead of just keeping them or saving them for someone I just decided to share them on Instagram and to kind of show that um, you can still have fears or insecurities and you can still go through things that you think make you less than perfect and you can still be really beautiful. And that's why I wanted to share them. And so it's been nice because then people have reached out to me who have been either wanting the mastectomy, but afraid that it would quote unquote ruin their body, which we know, which is not true. And just kind of feeling more confident in that. And, um, women who have reached out to me who are married and still don't feel comfortable to take their shirts off in front of their spouses and just it's really kind of launched a discussion into what does it take to feel good about your body mm -hmm. do you get do you get is it people who reach out to you is it specifically women with brca mutations or who've had um breast reconstruction surgeries down for whatever reason or do you do you find that it's it's all sorts of women who reach out to you it's primarily women who have the BRCA gene mutation or women who've had cancer but I will say there have been quite a few men who have had some sort of cancer experience whether they've had a, had a few people reach out to me who had prostate cancer and just said that they found the story inspiring and I've also had a few private messages 
whose mothers or sisters have had breast cancer and they just wanted to say thank you, thank you for sharing that journey. So I think a lot of people who are just affected by cancer in any way, shape or form have been fully inspired. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Patient Stories is an ad-free podcast and is unaffiliated with any commercial genetic testing laboratories. We would like to keep it that way. You can now donate to Patient Stories online by going to graygenetics.com slash podcast slash donate. If you don't want to make a monetary donation but still want to support the show in another way, leaving a review on iTunes or sharing our episodes through social media also makes a big difference. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.